Attorney General Merrick Garland makes a mockery out of the special counsel law. Maui residents begin returning to the biggest disaster in Hawaiian history as the grim death toll continues to rise. And Pastor Mike Hamlet joins us today for his personal account of the fire in Maui. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time, ladies and gentlemen, you know what time it is. It's time to crank it up. If you're listening live this morning, uh, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us for a, another week. We're, we're going to be a busy week. I mean, we've got a lot of stuff going on uh, to talk about. And uh, hope your weekend was a good one. This is Tony Beam. I serve as Director of Church and Community Engagement and Public Affairs for North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. Also serve as the director of the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And uh, what else do I do? Well, I'm currently interim pastor uh, for the time being at uh, Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. We've been getting a lot of uh, visitors lately, and we're looking forward. We look forward to that. We appreciate people coming by. Um, I, I love to preach God's Word. I mean, I think that's my, uh, my first and best call in life. God's called me to do a lot of things. And he's blessed me with the opportunity to be an interim pastor. I was a pastor for 14 years and then at North Greenville now for almost 20 years. Uh, before that, I was in radio full-time and uh, I'm blessed with the opportunity to be on his radio talk for 22 years uh, before Gary Miller, my producer, retired. And uh, so now I'm doing this uh, internet show and podcast and Trying to build an audience, you know. It's I mean, it's when you're the new guy and you're just putting stuff out there. Um, it's it's hard to get your audience numbers up sometimes, just because people don't know about you. So any help any help you can give me in getting the word out about this podcast, this radio or or internet show, if you enjoy it, you can go to drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com and hit the listen live button to listen live. You can follow me on YouTube and Facebook. That's where I'm parked from 7.30 to 8.30 live every morning, Monday through through Friday. And I have special guests. I do um, interviews. Last week we had John Warren, uh, who is um, the author of a new book, Lead like a Mar- Leading Like a Marine. And uh, we also had the Attorney General of South Carolina on last week talking about judicial reform in the state. And we just, from time to time, we have some really interesting people come by, as well as talking about the news from a biblical perspective. Today, we've got Pastor Mike Hamlet from First Baptist North Spartanburg here in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he's going to be talking about the fires in Maui from a firsthand experience. He was actually there um, as the fires were occurring, and so we're going to hear his story, which is is pretty harrowing, um, how... He was uh, able to get a cell phone signal to communicate with his family, uh, how he was able to get to the airport and how long that took and all of that. Uh, but I don't want to steal his thunder. Um, I'll be 
Let, he'll be on the show with me this morning starting at 8 o'clock. Now, I'm going to have to leave a little bit early. We won't get a full hour in today because I've got to head to Columbia for a meeting this morning. And um, But we'll have uh, the bulk of the show. And for those of you listening on the podcast, um, you can plan if you want to hear the whole thing. It's probably going to take you about 45 minutes. All right, the wildfire in, Mau- in Maui is now officially the deadliest fire in the, in the United States in more than a century. Uh, the death toll, as we began the broadcast today, stands at 93. But this is a stunning statistic here. And I had no idea. I've been reading stories about this on and off over the weekend. But uh, only 3% of the affected area has been thoroughly searched. And the remains that they're finding are in such bad shape that they're saying that it, it may be difficult, if ever, to um, actually identify them. If, if there are family members with people who are missing, they're asking them to come forward to, have, to give some DNA um, so that you can help identi- the process of identifying those who died in this, in this tragedy. Uh, it's just a terrible thing. So the death toll, even though it's at 93 at the moment, is expected to rise significantly in the days ahead. They're having to use cadaver dogs in Lahana, uh, which was just really completely destroyed. If you look at the pictures, it's heartbreaking. Um, I've, uh, Denise and I were in Maui uh, for our 25th wedding anniversary. We actually went with Joyful Sound from North Greenville University, who were there to sing on different places, different churches on the island, different events. Um, and we we went to Lahana, and it's, it's such a beautiful city. I mean, it's hard hard to describe. We, we went to a luau there and saw the tree, this huge tree. I can't remember the name of it. Um, some of you are probably shouting at the radio right now, but um, or at the um, at your computer. Um, I, I, but, but this, it's a, it's an, an incredibly old tree, huge, um, and it's, it's burned. I mean, it's scorched. They don't know what the effect on the tree will be. Of course, that's, you know, considering the death toll and the complete devastation of the, of the town, that's a, a rather small thing, except that it's a, it, it's a symbolic, uh, thing for the people of Maui and for the town. And so it's just been a, it's been a terrible thing. The estimated financial damage uh, to Maui right now stands at over $6 billion. Um, it's the largest, most deadly disaster, of course, in the island's history. And over the weekend, uh, Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, came out over the weekend and basically said people need to be prepared for what they're going to see if they're going to head back into the area. Everyone, Lina is a, a devastated zone. They will see destruction like they have not ever seen in their lives. Uh, everyone, please brace themselves as they go back. Be very safe. Be very careful. Uh, but we are going to get people back. So the governor's saying what the governor needs to say. He's telling the people that yes, it's devastating. Yes, they need to be prepared for what they're going to see. But yes, uh, the island of Maui is going to recover from this. And of course, uh, positive leadership is what's needed right now. I mean, the people need the truth. They need to know what happened. And there are a lot of people asking questions about exactly what happened and how this could have happened um, in such a terrible fashion. We're going to get into some of those in just a minute. But part, part of the, the, the thing that made this so bad is that the conditions on the island were particularly conducive to creating a wildfire 
and a particularly intense wildfire. They've been, they've been suffering uh, an extended period of drought in the area. They had strong winds that were from a hurricane that was a few hundred miles off the coast, and that fueled the fire. And according to local officials, uh, the county only has about 65 firefighters at any given time. Uh, that's just one of the things that people are upset about is that there were just simply not enough resources available to prevent the wall of fire from reaching populated areas. Now, you can't – part of the, the problem of depending on government for everything is that when something bad happens and the government's not prepared for it because it, 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 in your mind, in the people's mind, okay, this is up to the government – to make sure, and there's some things that the government should do, and of course, providing adequate fire protection, adequate um, having adequate emergency procedures in place to be able to, to contact people and to get them evacuated in the event of an emergency is something that the government should do. But one of the things that exacerbates the problem, at least people's attitude once once a, a terrible event like this happens, is that people are conditioned to believe that the government is supposed to be their protector, that the government is supposed to make sure that nothing like this happens, that immediately blame and finger pointing begins at the government. And there's some um, there, there's some reason for that. I mean, it's not just that people are frustrated or just that people are angry and want somewhere to direct their anger. There are things about the way the government handled this that they're going to look into. Who knows what they'll come up with? They'll come up probably with some excuse. But they're going to look into why some things happened the way they did that made the fire worse than it had to be. I mean, 65 firefighters, Folks, I, I know it's Maui's not that big of an of, of an island. I mean, it, it but but sixty five in in the county that are available at any given time. What about the equipment that they needed? What about their level of training? I mean, um, wildfires are something that is a real danger in Hawaii because you have volcanoes, you you have hurricanes. I mean, emergency, all of those things can lead to the possibility of wildfires. And plus the fact that just emergency personnel and equipment uh, in an island that can be affected by volcanoes and hurricanes and wildfires, it just seems that they would have been better prepared. And that's what the people are angry about. Um, and on top of that is this idea that they have, because Hawaii is a progressive state, very progressive. Uh, they have this idea that the government is supposed to take care of all their problems. And when they don't, then some of that anger gets turned back on the government. Uh, island residents are are particularly angry that government officials were not more prepared for the possibility, and they didn't give enough warning or information to the pit to the people. Hawaii is home to the largest system of alert sirens in the world. I don't I don't know if you know that, but that's just uh, one of the ways because of the natural disaster potentials in Hawaii. They have. One of the chief ways that they get in touch with people or let them know that something's happening is this elaborate siren system that they employ when there's an emergency. They're meant to alert the public in the event of something like a volcano eruption, a hurricane, a wildfire, pretty much any type of natural disaster. Well, Tuesday, when the wildfires began, for an unknown reason, the sirens remained silent. So the only warning that residents had came from word of mouth 
and from text messages. And the problem is that the text messages began to fail because cell service on the island failed. And they don't, they're going to have to investigate the reason for that. Was it because the cell towers were destroyed in the fire? Uh, were, the, were they affected by the power outages? Um, but whatever the reason, uh, the state's going to be launching an investigation into why the warning systems failed. But right now, the people of Maui need our prayers. We need, as people of God, people who believe in the power of prayer and believe um, that God is sovereign and that he hears the broken hearts of the people that are hurt by things like this and that God can work and move in people's lives to do miracles. He can, he can work and move in people's lives to move them past this disaster, this tragedy, to comfort family members that have lost loved ones. Um, it, it is, there's so much need. We, we need to pray for resources. Um, I understand over the weekend, I think Jeff Bezos has announced some uh, incredible amount of money that is going to be given to help Hawaii recover from this. And there's going to be a lot of people. I mean, Americans are still a very generous people. Um, they, we, we want to take care of fellow Americans in particular when something like this happens. And uh, I know there's going to be a lot of money donated, but it's going to take, as we said, billions of dollars and a lot of volunteers, a lot of people helping Hawaii to get back on their feet after this disaster. All right, we had another disaster over the weekend. Now, this this disaster, nothing like the one in Hawaii. Uh, the Hawaiian disaster was a natural disaster that cost people their lives. This disaster was a government disaster that simply cost the integrity of the Justice Department, at least how much ever integrity they had left. Because on Friday, Merrick Garland appointed a special counsel to investigate the Hunter Biden case, but the person he appointed is raising serious concerns among those who want to see Hunter Biden and President Biden brought, brought to justice. And, of course, the reason that it's causing all the concerns is because the person that was appointed is David Weiss, the Delaware prosecutor who works for the Justice Department. And this is Merrick Garland making the announcement on Friday afternoon. Garland approved it because, as he said, extraordinary circumstances warranted it. As special counsel, he will continue to have the authority and responsibility that he has previously exercised to oversee the investigation and decide where, when, and whether to file charges. Okay, that was Morning Wire that you heard right before the quote, and this story is coming today from Morning Wire, which is a part of Daily Wire, uh, which, by the way, uh, you need to be involved with. Daily Wire is a great source of information. Um, it, you, can, you can access a lot of the information free, and then there are different levels of, su of subscriptions that you can take. All right, so Garland comes out, and as Weiss's special counsel status, uh, if you remember, Garland before said that Weiss didn't need special counsel status, that we didn't need a special counsel here because Weiss had all the authority that he needed to bring charges anywhere they should be brought, um, and and that we now know is not true. Uh, that it it this lends credibility to the whistleblower testimony that Weiss couldn't investigate or file charges against Biden in D.C. and California 
because he didn't have the authority. He was told by the uh, prosecutors and by the officials in those states or in the D.C. area and in the state of California that he wasn't authorized to bring charges. Although Merrick Garland, who's the attorney general, assured everybody that he was authorized to bring charges wherever they could be brought. And now all of a sudden, we have to have Weiss as a special counsel. Um, and and appointing him makes absolutely no sense. Hunter Biden's team, their legal team's not happy about this because Weiss has been the lead investigator in this case for five years. And the, and the Biden team is saying, look, if something new comes up, and, and of course they should be happy about this, they're, they're raising sand about it, I think, as part of an elaborate show here because they know that they have to know the score. I mean, Weiss is responsible for the sweetheart plea deal that went down the drain last month because he was not willing to say that the investigation was over. He kind of, um, you know, sandbagged uh, Hunter Biden's attorneys in some way, but there's no way that Weiss was going to get in front of a judge and say that there's not going to be any more investigation into Hunter Biden because as long as there's an investigation into Hunter Biden, then the committee from Congress looking into allegations about Hunter Biden's bags of cash that he's gotten from overseas that have found their way into the pockets of the Biden family, including the big guy, President Biden, now President Biden, who was then vice president. There's no way that he was going to say that there's not an investigation because as long as they're invested in an investigation, the DOJ with a straight face can look at a congressional committee and say, look, this is an ongoing investigation. We, we can't give you any more information. And that's all the more important now because the department, because the investigators on the oversight committee are getting close to the truth about what happened in 2014 and 15 in particular with Vice President Biden, the money that was coming in, now estimated to be at over $20 million, into these shell corporations. And the legacy media, one of the, one of the fascinating things about this to me is that the legacy media, many of them have said, look, we're not going to look at this. We're not going to investigate. We're not going to think there's anything to see here until we see uh, President Biden, who then is vice president, taking money from a Chinese, a Russian, or a Ukrainian official. Well, they're not going to see that. I mean, what are, you, what are you talking about? Set an impossible standard that you're going to use as to, to determine whether you're going to join in the investigation and begin to report on this. So set the bar so high um, impossibly high, so that you don't have to do any reporting. Because obviously, you're not going to see Vice President Biden getting a payoff from a Russian official. Why do you think they set up all the shell companies? I mean, all of that was designed to keep the vice president from appearing to be involved and to allow him to benefit from what Hunter Biden was doing uh, while he was talking to all of his cronies uh, while they were bringing him into these tele the, uh, by telephone into these meetings, so that Hunter Biden could demonstrate to all of his investors that he had access to the vice president, which is what they were interested in. Do you really think that Burisma paid millions of dollars to Hunter Biden because of his vast knowledge of the gas industry? I mean, please. He had no knowledge. What he had was access to his father. They knew that. They needed Shokin, the, the prosecutor in Ukraine, to be canned because he was getting close 
to finding corruption going on at Burisma. And voila, they get Hunter Biden on the board, and all of a sudden the vice president of the United States is firing Shokin. He's going to the Ukraine telling the Ukrainians if they want the, the billion dollars in aid that they've been promised, then they better, they better get rid of the prosecutor. And the prosecutor is fired from his job. And we're supposed to believe that all of that is just coincidence, that it has nothing to do with any money that was exchanging hands, even though the money's been discovered. And we know that it was in these shell corporations. Weiss's appointment, as you look at this, it violates the Justice Department guidelines for appointing a special counsel. Why? Well, because the person appointed is supposed to be from outside the Justice Department. The whole point is that Merrick Garland is President Joe Biden's attorney general. And Hunter Biden is President Joe Biden's son. And so there's all kinds of opportunity for impropriety and corruption here because of the connections between the president, his Justice Department, and the investigation of his son, and, of course, now the investigation into the president himself because of where the evidence is leading. So the person appointed has got to be, if you're going to have a special counsel that's going to be able to work independently from the Justice Department, they can't be part of the Justice Department that they're supposed to work independently from. That just makes sense. Merrick Garland made it clear that David Weiss is not going to lose his position at the Department of Justice because he was asked about that. And I, I really like, uh, as you know, if you've listened to me for any length of time, I'm a big fan of Andrew McCartney, McCarthy because I think that um, he's one of the smartest people. He's a former prosecutor. Um, he's a former He's been, uh, he's done a lot of things in law enforcement and is very knowledgeable at how, about how the law is supposed to work, and he does a good job of communicating that. And they asked him what he thought about David Weiss being appointed, and he said basically, hey, it's, it's a complete sham. This is the Biden Justice Department's vehicle for maintaining control of an investigation that they are not pursuing. They've had the case for five years. They've never indicted it. They're strategically allowing the statute of limitations to run to the point that the 2014 and 2015 conduct, which covers most of the $21 million that the congressional investigation report showed this week, that's already time barred because David Weiss himself decided to let those charges die rather than bring an indictment. They're not doing anything that you would do if there was an actual investigation, and he can't be a special counsel because he's inside the government. Okay, that's I, I don't know how you could be any more clear that, as we said earlier, the, the statute of limitations on crimes committed by Hunter Biden, tax fraud that would be connected to the, to the $21 million that congressional investigators have turned up in these shell corporations, or, um, uh, you know, that, the, that was 2014 and 2015, and the statute of limitations is, is running out. Now they're going to be able to say that. And when congressional investigators come around demanding more information from the Justice Department, they're going to get referred to the special counsel who's going to then say to the investigators, we can't talk about this or give you any information because of the ongoing investigation. So the investigation will just simply be ongoing throughout the election process. It'll be buried. There won't be any new information forthcoming. Why don't don't expect to see headlines during the campaign while Biden's running for president 
that is is any new breaking information coming out of the case because the whole point of putting Weiss in this position is to keep that from happening. And, of course, the, the sweetheart plea deal that fell apart when Weiss refused to agree um, that the investigation against Hunter Biden was over. We, we now know that there were provisions in that deal that granted complete immunity to Hunter for the, for the crimes that he had, he had committed and any other crimes that they might uncover. I mean, that was part of the deal. The Biden administration thought this whole thing was going to go away, that they were going to be able to cover up everything because they were going to be able to get this, this plea deal and then they were going to be able to just move on to say there's nothing to see here because the plea deal's been in place, Biden's been held accountable, and that, that no more investigation. And, of course, the uh, legacy media would back all of that up. Now, the main architect of the plea deal was David Weiss. You understand. And he's now the special counsel. That's the person Merrick Garland has appointed and, and, that, and that we're supposed to believe that he's going to conduct a vigorous investigation. This amounts to the government having a fixer for a particular case, and then that fixer being appointed as the main person in charge of finding out if the fix is in. I mean, that, it, just think about it on those terms. It's, it's absurd. It's outrageous. It's obviously designed to prevent the Congressional Oversight Committee from looking into this to gain more access to information that they need to prove their case. So shortly after the Weiss appointment, David Weiss made a statement saying the government now believes this case will not resolve short of a trial, and Hunter's legal team is still holding out hope that they're going to be able to get some kind of deal. But Weiss, are, are, are you, you know, let's go back to David Weiss. This is the same David Weiss, who gave the president's son the sweetheart deal of the century. We've already talked about that. This is the same David Weiss whose office refused to approve a search warrant for the president's guest house when Hunter Biden was living there, despite the fact that they admitted there was sufficient grounds to justify a search warrant. Because they, if they went in there and started searching, then they might have found evidence leaking Hunter Biden to President Biden and to Vice President Biden's activity in 2013 or 2014 and 2015. So they, did, they didn't execute the search warrant. This is the same David Weiss whose office tipped off Biden's lawyers that the IRS agents intended to search his storage unit, which gave them time that was needed for them to move any potential important evidence. So we, we, don't, have, we don't have any charges filed. We're not going to have any charges filed. This is the smokescreen of the century, and it really is, is a sad state of affairs. I mean, there, there's no way that this is going to ever see the inside or even the outside of a courtroom. I mean, as far as coming up with a different plea deal, I don't think they'll even get that far. I think the purpose here is to simply have someone working in the background so that the Justice Department, so that Democrats— and on, on the whole, so that the, every time there's an a annoying question, you can just simply say, well, there's an investigation going on. We'll leave that to the investigators. And when, as we said, when the oversight committee, which was getting close, and again, they, they had to do something. What, somebody had to be 
uh, set up as special counsel because of the amount of evidence, the coming forth of the whistleblowers, the corroborating evidence that's now being discovered. Because when you, you put all that together, they've got to have a shield. They've got to have a way to keep more information from coming out because if anything else comes out, it's going to connect all the dots. I mean, there's a very good chance that that could happen. And the Justice Department, under uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, I believe, is working with the Biden administration to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, and, and all the while, all while that's going on, you've got a full-blown, every in, in a lot of different areas, prosecutions against former President Trump. Now, again, I'm... I'm you know, I've said this many times on this program before. I'm not saying that former President Trump is not liable for some of the stuff that he's done because he's actually handed the sword to some of the prosecutors um, and, and some of the investigators that they're now using to attack him with. I mean, uh, particularly in the documents case. But those cases are far from airtight. Um, and we, we don't know what's going to come out of Georgia Likely, you know, we've been hearing next week, next week, but the grand jury is going to be meeting this week, and they're going to have testimony, I think, beginning tomorrow. Um, and so they're looking at the possibility of right before Labor Day, the grand jury is going to wrap up, and when the grand jury wraps up, that's when the charges will come out of Georgia. We're hearing anything from uh, half a dozen to a dozen charges against uh, President Trump and other people are now being implicated. Now, we're going to talk about that tomorrow because we don't have time to get into it today, but there's information coming out now uh, of communication between Trump's lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani, and some of the officials down in Georgia that um, is going to be, I'm sure, is going to be included as evidence in some of the indictments coming out of that state. So the, the plan here is simple to me. I mean, I... And believe me, I don't like this talking about this stuff because, you know, I, I would like to be able to have a little bit of faith and trust in the government. But when you can see plainly that David Weiss's appointment can mean nothing more than the covering up of what has happened with President, uh, President Biden and his son Hunter in this whole mess, and when you see all these charges coming against Trump— while all of the cover-up and all of the moves to try to keep President Biden clear from Hunter Biden's clear uh, job as being the bag man for the Biden family, I mean, it's hard to have confidence in the government. Um, yeah, it's uh, it just it, it's a very it, it, we, when you can see the level of corruption that's in operation here. I mean, it's in plain sight. Normally that you would go out and, and try to cover up corrupt behavior. But that's not what's happening here. I mean, this is, this is the government being corrupt right in front of everybody. I mean, it's an in-your-face kind of operation that I don't know if the American people are going to accept this or not. Now, I don't know how many people are paying attention to all of this, um, but I think people that are can see that this is – this is absolutely going in a direction that's designed to protect the president and designed to take down former President Trump. I, I, don't, I don't see how you can look at the facts and see them in any other way. Um, all right. Um, we're waiting on uh, Mike Hamlet. He's a pastor of First Baptist North Spartanburg. We're expecting him to call in here just any minute to talk about his experiences in Maui. 
he, he was there visiting a friend, and um, it was it, pretty harrowing. I mean, I, he's, um, the card's on the table here. Uh, Mike is one of my best friends in ministry, and um, for a couple of days we were, were not able to get in touch with him because of uh, issues with cell phone communication. And he had to take some pretty heroic steps that I hope he's going to talk about here in a minute um, to be able to establish mobile cell phone communication with at least a family member. Um, and it'll, it'll give you a little bit of the idea of the chaos that was happening on the island as people were trying to get out. You can imagine tourists. I mean, there were people... Um, who were there celebrating their anniversary. There were people there who were on their honeymoons. Um, There were uh, families on vacation. Uh, Obviously, Hawaii, and particularly Maui, is a vacation and a very much desired destination for uh, travel, and everybody's trying to get out because there's no power uh, at the time that people were flooding to the airport, that really that no no one knew how long it was going to take to re- to restore power to the island or when people were going to have cell phone communication, and there weren't there just weren't a lot of people that were willing to uh, wait that out, not knowing exactly how long those things were going to take. Um, also, you, I will say this: the person that um, that Mike was visiting. Uh, he's decided to stay to try to help with some of the recovery efforts. I mean, I, I think that's very a very noble thing um, that if you have property there and you can stay and help once you get pow- uh, power back, I mean, there's not a lot you can do without, uh, without power and cell coverage. But as those things began to be restored, then that's greatly assisting all of the people on the island that are trying to do search and, you know, we're prayerful that there's going to be people that are found alive um, as the search goes forward. But the devastation of the fire, I, if, if you looked at the pictures, um, I've, I kind of scrolled through um, some, some pictures of Lahana, and it is unrecognizable. I mean, it looks like a nuclear explosion went off in that town. Uh, cars completely burned out. And that's why they're saying that the, even they're having to use cadaver dogs uh, to try to find, um, you, you know, people that they believe are missing. There are, uh, there were 1,500 people missing, I think the last count that I saw. And, you know, we're, we're prayerful and hopeful that it's just that we don't know where they are because, as we said, is the lack, lack of the uh, cell phone signal um, and uh, the, the power being out, it's possible that those people are alive and just not, they haven't been contacted. But the hope is beginning to fade to some of that as cell phone service is restored and power comes back on. Um, it, it looks like the, the work is going to be primarily for the cadaver dogs. And I, it's going to take Maui years uh, to recover from this. I, I think they'll recover. And I hope that the government investigation, that they are honest with it. I mean, I, that may be asking a lot uh, for a government entity that's going to have to investigate itself uh, to be honest about processes that should have been in place, that they can put in place to prevent something like this from happening again. But, you know, going back to the story that we talked about earlier, 65 firefighters available at any, and that doesn't mean that they were all available at the same time. That means there were 65 
available at any given time, if you could get all of them um, with the equipment that they have to the forefront. And when you've got a wall of fire that's moving as fast as this was moving in Maui, um, that's clearly not enough resources to even close uh, to uh, getting enough resources in to to be able to do what needed to be done. All right, I'm going to see if I can uh, I'm going to see if I can call Mike here. Um, see if I can get him to pick up. Let's go ahead and let you hear a little phone ringing on the air. How about that? This reminds me of my old radio days when we used to call people when they didn't know we were going to call them. Okay, that's it. Three ringy dingies. Anybody remember that? Saturday Night Live. Okay, do I have uh, Pastor Mike Hello? Hamlet on the phone? Mike, is that you? Yes, Tony. How hey. are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. I just thought I'd try, try to catch up with you this morning for the program uh, because, uh, as I've been telling our listeners, uh, you actually were in Maui during the time that this disaster was going on, and I wanted to people to get a little bit of your perspective of how this looked from, from somebody who was there. Well, it was... Um... It was, it's, it's a strange, it's almost like the, uh, the perfect storm, uh, was like, because the weather there is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. It hardly ever rains and, you know, it's just, uh, temperatures very steady and everything, but they had a, and if you want me, I'll just describe it quickly. We sure. had a couple of days of very high winds. And this is what I think you'll read in the media. That this is what they think. They had a right. wind, very high winds. I mean, it was a it was a hurricane south of the Big Island, and it was and winds were coming from that. wasn't rain, but just high winds. It right. blow you away. Right. And so it blew down some power lines. The power lines fell in the what dry grass that covers the plains out there near the near the coast. And, uh, and, and that area, that area had been in drought. I mean, that had an extended drought yes, yes, in the, in the yes, part of yes. the, where, where the fire started. So that's right. That's right. It's been a drought. So then it, the fire started and then because the winds were there, that it blew the, it blew the grass, it was grass that was burning and it would get it up in the air and blow it down to the coast. Right. And they, and they blew it then, you know, it, they had a piece of that grass, they'd blow up, you know, it'd be blown a hundred, 200 yards. And, and, and then the place where they went and where all the buildings were lost, they were, they were tightly put together, small homes, uh, old homes, uh, right. for the most part. And, um, and you know, so just old wood and boy, when it touched them, it went. It's the first time I've ever heard people talk about that. They didn't just fool around. They, they had to, they couldn't get out. They were trapped. Right. And, uh. Well, you're talking about there they, were, were they, were, out there, right? they, they were right up against the water. So it was the, the, the uh, yes. being able to get out. I mean, you've got you've got main mainly one highway where people come in and go out. Oh, that's right. That's hi- right. The highway was blocked because of the fire. And then people trying to just walk out uh, were getting caught up in areas where the fire was some of the worst. Now you were there visiting a friend, and you were talking to me about the fact that you were on, you were only about four miles away from where this started. Yes, but you yes. didn't even, you didn't even know it was going on because the wind was blowing in the opposite direction, so you didn't even see the yes. smoke. And you no, actually we, were wa- out walking and ran into somebody who said who told you what was going on. 
Yes, the night, the day before, we had lost power, and then, and then uh, that night before, we lost cell service. So we were completely incommunicado. I mean, we just we couldn't talk to anybody, and uh, when we knew the the winds had happened, and we figured that that's what happened with the power. We we're walking out, and us, and we just stopped a guy that was doing security duty for a hotel that was nearby there, and just said, "Well, how's it going?" He looked at us. He said, "It's gone." So what do you mean it's gone? Said the city's gone, Lahaina. Uh, it's gone. Wow. And uh, and tell us a little bit. So and his home was one of them that was burned. I I met four or five people. Their home was burned completely. And one of the things that was really interesting is is that they had a, a very it was, it was not tragic attitudes. It was just matter of fact. Uh, you know, it's gone. Yeah. So- it's, it's it's gone. And uh, where do you start? I don't know. Well, uh, now you you actually had a situation where you were concerned about your family once you found out that this was international news, and of course your family knew you were there. Uh, you couldn't get word out to them that you were okay, and of course you you were concerned that they would be worried about you. You climbed oh, you climbed a mountain. Uh, tell me about that. Well, it, it was it wasn't that but we they had no way of getting to us and we had no way of getting to them and so uh, we heard from a from a guy that we knew there that there was a place up a couple miles where we are up it was kind of up a little bit on a hill wouldn't have been a mountain it was a beside okay. the road but it was a high spot where right. you go and you, it wasn't hard to find you went up on the road and and you had to be careful you didn't want to go very far because you didn't want to waste your gas right. there was no gas right and so there were about 200 people, two, 300 people standing up there walking up on this little hill right there, walking, trying to get cell service. And that, that was a, a couple of days before we, could, before we could get there. And I had to talk to them quickly to say, you know, we're okay. We're not, we haven't been hurt. We, not, we don't think we're in, in danger of the fire. Right. But, um, you know, they had immediate problems of, of food, water, um, they, that's water problems, power, cell service. Um, you know, it was just. The, so, so the, the next storm. question, the next question for your, your family, of course, is when are you going to be able to get out? And you didn't know for sure the answer to that, I guess, when you were, had that window no, I didn't. of cell phone communication. So how did you get out? How did you get out of Mount? Well, we, we found, we were out, we were out walking and found a place that we walked by that was a, uh, hotel that was the, the hotels were closing, so they were busing their people to the airport. I had a I had a ticket out when I was supposed to go out, and so I just had to get there. And so I somehow got on with a guy, and I and I tell you, this is a I told our church this yesterday. Uh, I met a, uh, a doorman there, and um, and I asked him. Uh, we asked him, said, could I get out on the bus? And they were very kind. They said, yeah, come on, just anybody needs to go, we'll. And the guy was just extremely kind. He asked what we did. We said, "Well, we we were um, uh, that we were in uh, theological work." And and uh, so he said to me, he "said Well, your pastors." And he looked at us and he said, "And he said uh, he said we need you guys." Yeah. And it was very very serious because he wasn't was a Christian. Right. And uh, and so there, there's a great deal of paganism there and. And they realized that Christ said, we need you guys. And I said to our church yesterday that, you know, 
that's that's what it needs to be for us. They the the world in which we live needs those guys that are Christians. Well, uh, and, men, women, young people, uh, and, and we've got to, to be available. We've got to have yeah, not, living as believers, not necessarily answers in the sense that we walk in and explain to them how something that, like this could happen, but that we walk in and experience this and walk with them and minister to them and provide for their needs. That's what the call of the church is. Um, yes, and, and absolutely. So, so you were able to get on the bus and get to the airport, and it took you a little while after you got to the airport <laughs> to actually get to, out. To, usually it takes about 40 minutes. It took me four hours to get to the airport. Wow. And we, I rode through, rode through the city, and you couldn't tell what was what. It was almost completely flat. Yeah. A few plaster walls that were left, but the, those homes burned up. Place we had dinner uh, two or three nights before had burned to the ground. Uh, a store we'd been in had burned to the ground. Um, you know, it's, it's so it's kind of a tourist spot that's there, and it was burned. They had boats. Boats. The the winds were so bad. The fire would go, and they had boats in the harbor burn, right. and uh, because it, it blew out into the surf, and and uh, there were so many people that jumped in the ocean just to get away from the fire because it was moving so fast. Right, and uh, so it was. It was. Uh, so I got to the airport, and I, and I felt good because I was at the airport. And I knew it was going to be a bad day, uh, but I had, I was there nine hours early for my flight. So right. I said, "Well, I'll." And, and of course it's jammed with people, but I, I could get in there, had to reschedule my flights from LA. And so, um, I got that done with, I also said I got off the bus because I'd held no cell service. I wasn't able to see my emails. My text said my, my flight now was delayed for 12 hours. So I was stuck another 12 hours. So I was 24 hours in the airport at Maui before right. I could even go anywhere. Right. Uh, all in all, it took you about 50 hours to get home. About 50 from, hours to get home. From the time you got to the airport to the time you got to your Yeah, from the time I left home. the airport from the time I got home, that was about well, 50 hours. Well, uh, first of all, I'm very thankful um, that you're safe and that you were able to get out safely. And uh, you've seen things firsthand that we're seeing on the news, and that's going to help you to be able to pray for the people um, in a way that, yeah. that maybe others won't be able to, you know, at, at, why do you think Mike, that they were so matter of fact in their responses? Do you think that was shock? They were just in shock over what was happening. Well, they, in that area there, they have, um, that wildfires all the time. I'm told I'm not there a lot. So I, I, I'm told they had wildfires that were there. And like, as I said, perfect storm between the high winds, dry conditions, right. uh, the, the wind, the power lines going down. It was just the, the, the perfect storm that was there yeah. and, it, and it all worked together. And that's, that, that almost never happens like that. And so, and, and they're the limited, the road, the place that was burned, the city that was burned has their buildings are so close together it's hard to get the fire trucks in there. Right. They don't have enough as it is probably. And for a front fire that size and the firemen couldn't even go in there and fight it because the, the embers are up in the air. I mean, you're literally dodging parts of grass and ashes yeah, that are on fire. You. Right. While they're on fire while you're doing this. So they had to stand back and in some ways, I think, watch. 
so well, we could get in there and get at it. You know, for, a, for an area that has is known for wildfires, that's something that the people are mad about at the government because, uh, according to the information I got this morning, there were only 65 firefighters available at any given time in that particular yes, county. Yes. And so they didn't have the personnel or the amount of equipment to deal with something. I mean, a grass fire, yes, but not a wall of fire that is consuming yeah. a city. They just were totally unprepared. Um, yes. But as I said, I'd like for us to wrap up our time. And by the way, thank you for being willing to take a few minutes with us today. Um, let's uh, let's just pray together quickly for the people there. Sure. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus to watch over the people, to comfort those who have lost loved ones, to give grace and protection to those who may be waiting for rescue. We pray that they would be found and, and uh, survive this. We pray for those officials who are making decisions and the families that have lost everything. God, we pray for wisdom for the officials. We pray for grace for the families, for your provision to take care of them. And I pray that they would look to you for hope in a situation that appears hopeless, Lord, because you are sovereign and because you love us and because we're made in your image. There's never a situation that is hopeless. There's always opportunity where you work and move in our lives. And we pray that you would bring restoration to these people and to this place and to take care of those who are still in the process of looking for survivors and recovering those who lost their lives in this terrible thing. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're going to do in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. my friend. Amen. I appreciate you, glad you. Glad you're back. God bless you, hey, and you have a great day. Well, it was a, it was a very uh, interesting experience. It was I, one of the most interesting things I saw was the way people responding, because when you go to the airports, they don't have flights. Well, you right. just saw anything and everything. It was it was a, a time, and I, I just uh, say to, to our folks, I said to our folks yesterday, I said, folks, you got to be ready in times of these times of crisis because right. they look to us as believers. Yes. I hope that we will respond correctly. To set an example. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah. All right, my friend. Thank you very much for being hey, on the show. You have a great day. That's Pastor Mike Hamlet from First Baptist North Spartanburg. He was there in Maui at the time of the fire and had a, a pretty harrowing experience where we're thankful that he got out. And now we're thankful for those that are still there that are working and for those that will be going in the coming days to try to restore that island. Well, you have a great day. I hope you've enjoyed the program today. If you did, be sure to download the podcast and leave me a good review. See you in the morning. Easy.